Well, welcome here again. Good morning. Today we're continuing in our series through the book of Acts uh, called This is the Way. We're going to be finishing this series next week uh, with Paul's journey to Rome, but this week we find ourselves in Caesarea, which spans from Acts 23, 31 to all the way through Acts chapter 26. Last week we looked at Paul's third and final missionary journey that took him around Ephesus, took him back through Macedonia and Achaia, and he wanted to go to Rome, but he didn't get there. And he went to Jerusalem, felt the Spirit calling him there, and he knew that hardship and prison awaited him, and sure enough, he was arrested. And he was, you know, Jews are trying to kill him there, and so for his safety, the Roman guards decide to send him to Caesarea to talk with the governor, Felix, about all these accusations and to stand trial there because Paul is a Roman citizen. Now, I feel like his journey to Caesarea would have been similar to, uh, you know, back in school for some of us that was, is recent, is current. For some of us, that has been quite a while. But I feel like his journey to Caesarea is similar to when you get called down to the principal's office. I don't want to say publicly if I have experience with this. Maybe, maybe I do. Uh, I remember several times, you know, over the PA, I think now it's definitely different, or somebody would come to the office or come to the classroom from the office with like a note it's like, and just like point at you or like, all right, Alec, principal's office. And you're like, all right, I didn't do anything. I swear. I'm innocent. I feel like that's how, how Paul feels here a little bit. He's innocent. But for his safety, he agrees. Let's go to Caesarea. And he, you know, in his mind, he didn't do anything wrong. But he knew why he was going. And, and as we're going to see today, he used every opportunity to continue to share the gospel message. So we read in Acts chapter 23 what that looked like when the commander in Jerusalem sent Paul to Caesarea. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Then he, that's the commander, called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. That is a ton of people to carry, to take one man safely to Caesarea from Jerusalem. 470 people were to accompany Paul. Why did they need that much protection for this one man? What harm was coming his way? Or what harm did they think was coming his way? Earlier in chapter 23, uh, one of Paul's nephews, this is the only indication of Paul's family that we have, one of Paul's nephews overhears these Jewish people making a you know, statement and, and they said, you know, we are not going to eat and we're not going to rest until Paul is killed, until he's dead. And it was over 40 people that took this oath, that vowed to kill Paul. I mean, 40 people is, is quite a few, but 470 seems a little like overkill to me. You know, that seems like a ton of people, but they weren't sure who they were going to encounter or what they were going to face. 
And because Paul's a Roman citizen, they figured we need to protect this man and get him to Governor Felix so that he can decide what to do. So Paul's delivered to governor of Judea, to Felix, and he was the governor from roughly uh, from 80, 52 to 59. This was the same position that Pontius Pilate had, uh, and while the Jews were free to govern themselves in Jerusalem, the governor ran the army, kept the peace, and of course, collected the taxes. So in chapter 24, verse 1, Paul arrives, and so does his accusers in Caesarea. Let's, we'll pick up the story of 24, verse 1. It says, five days later, so that's five days after Felix called for these Jewish leaders, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now these towns, these cities weren't super close together. They were about 60 miles apart, or about 100 kilometers. Now the Roman center of government was Caesarea, and so, you know, this trial was to stand before Roman officials, where these Jewish officials can bring their false accusations. The murder plot in Jerusalem failed so far, but they continued to try to kill Paul by any means necessary. And so in doing so, they brought three accusations against Paul. The first one, and this might be the worst one, was that he was a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews. I mean, to me, that seems like a very vague and insufficient charge. The second charge was that he was the ringleader of an unrecognized religious cult, which, of course, was against Roman law. We see this in chapter 24, verse 5 there. They use the word a Nazarene cult. And the people use that term because, you know, a way to, to classify the people that followed Jesus of Nazareth. And then their third accusation was that he tried to desecrate the temple. Which again wasn't true because Paul made every effort to be clean and to cleanse himself before he went into the temple as according, according to Jewish customs. These religious leaders, they really hoped that this was going to do it. Drive the nail in Paul's coffin. They were hoping that they would be able to persuade Felix to execute Paul in order to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Now the, the religious leaders seemed, they thought they had these strong arguments. But Paul refutes his accusation point by point. And in doing so, he also presents the gospel message through his defense, both in this trial and then he's again tried later with another governor uh, that replaces Felix. But we're going to get there in a moment. Here in this trial, Paul's accusers were unable to present specific uh, you know, accusations and specific evidence for, for their accusations. For example, Paul was accused of, of being a troublemaker, starting trouble wherever he went. And they, they even used the example of, you know, all across Asia, he's been stirring up trouble, but they didn't even have any Jews from Asia join them at this trial. Now, up to this point, Felix was, had been the governor for about six years. And it tells us that he knew well about the way, well about the Christians. Surely, it was even a topic among Roman leaders. They knew that the Christians weren't 
people to start trouble and to stir up riots on purpose. That wasn't what they were, that wasn't their goal. And so Paul's defense here before Felix comes to a highlight, at least for me, when he, you know, finishes his defense in chapter 24, verses 13 and 14. Paul is saying, the Jews, they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. At the very end of Paul's defense, in verse 22, we see the end of this trial, where Felix then stands up and he says something. In verse 22, it says, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. Then he had ordered the centurion to keep Paul under Roman guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Here in verse 25, Paul's talk with Felix came so personal that he grew frightened. He didn't like what Paul had to say. And like other leaders before him, Felix had taken another man's wife. So Paul's words were interesting as they focused on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this, but I found that typically people are open to a conversation about God, or typically they're open to a conversation about the gospel. That is until a certain point, until you start getting a little personal. Now, I've worked uh, several jobs in the trades industry, which has its own colorful array of people and words used on a daily. And, uh, you know, they would, we'd get into a conversation, and when they found out that, I w- that I'm a Christian, they would have two responses. The first response is that they would clam up, because, uh-oh, they've just been swearing like nobody else, and they're afraid of what about asking questions, they're afraid about everything else that they have said already up to this point. So they clam up and they avoid any other further interactions. The second response is similar to Felix here, is that they're open to a conversation about God and they ask questions and this might be one conversation, this might be over days or weeks or months or years, them asking you know, a question here and there until it gets too personal. And then like that first response, they clam up and they avoid any further interactions. But this is what the gospel is about. God's power to change lives. You know, it's not effective. The gospel's not effective when it's just, you know, principles and doctrines. It's only effective when it moves from that into a life-changing, dynamic relationship with Jesus. And that seems to be the case for Paul. And so Felix 
keeps Paul in prison and talks with him regularly, hoping that Paul is going to bribe him to let him go because then he would actually have something to charge him with. Finally, if Paul would just bribe him a little bit to let him out, then he would have something. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, they continue their conversations. And for over two years, Paul is held in prison here in the middle of a trial with no answer, hoping, from Felix hoping that surely he's going to mess up. Surely he's going to offer me a bribe one day. But he doesn't. And after two years, Felix is called back to Rome and a new governor is appointed called Festus. So we pick up the story Chapter 24, verse 27, and into chapter 25. It says, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Because, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews had come down who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove any of them. Paul then made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am found guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus has conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. You know, Paul knew that if he went to Jerusalem, there was going to be another ambush, which it tells us. They were planning, still after two years, that this man, Paul, this man needs to die. And Paul knew that they tried to kill me once, or twice, or however many times it's been already. They're surely going to try me again, try to kill me again. And so he makes his defense, and he says, no, I'm, we're in the court right now. Let's decide this now. And as things don't move, he says, that's it. I appeal to Caesar, which means that they have to send him to Rome as a Roman citizen. You know, it seems that Paul was inciting, inciting problems among the Jews everywhere he went. Like I said last week, the two responses to Paul's gospel here, as he was preaching the gospel, two responses to Paul was either that they you know, accepted the words of Jesus and, and accepted that, or they wanted to kill him. But still, he had committed no crime. He was merely sharing with them the good news of Jesus. But still, they wanted him dead. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. And to Caesar you will go, Festus said. 
Paul knew that as a Roman, he could appeal to Caesar's judgment. As an innocent person, it it didn't mean that Caesar himself would necessarily proceed over that, but it was the highest court in the empire. And so he had every right to go. And Festus saw this as an opportunity to send him out of the country, maybe pacify the Jews, get him out of this region. As we heard a few weeks ago, Paul wanted to go to Rome anyways. And whether, you know, that was in chains going there, it was better to him that he would go at least as a prisoner than not go at all. And even though Paul was in prison, you know, we looked at this last week, it didn't stop him from making the most of every situation. At the end of chapter 25 and 26, Military officers and prominent city leaders met again in the palace room. Festus met with King Agrippa to hear the case, and so they called Paul back in one more time. Paul saw this again as another opportunity to share the gospel message. It's a new audience. There's new people now. Surely, you know, he can continue to preach the gospel, no matter what, no matter where or when or how many times they're going to hear this. And at the end of chapter 26, I want to read a a little section here of this. Because Paul, first he recounts quickly his upbringing as a Roman citizen, as a devout Jew, and even one who persecuted these Christians, the followers of the way. But upon meeting Jesus himself on his way to Damascus, all that changed for Paul. And he is so eager to share that with everyone with every Roman guard that stands over him, with every trial and every court case that, or every court that he goes into. And so Paul, you know, in his defense, is sharing all these things, recounting all of this. And in chapter 26, verse 22, Paul says, God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets of Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he said. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that God not only, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and his wife Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agapro said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa's response there, similar to, to anyone that I've met that's already made up their mind. 
about something, about anything, when you're trying to convince them or persuade them, and they have that, you know, already there's walls up. Do you think you're going to persuade me? He didn't want to be brought into the conversation. He was just there to observe this trial, to hear what was going on. And so his, ve- his response is valid. Do you think you can persuade me? Have you ever needed to convince or persuade someone of anything? Maybe a spouse or a sibling or, or a coworker or a boss? I remember when I was about 18 or so, my friends and I uh, from Vancouver wanted to do a road trip to see our friends across the prairies and we were gonna finish somewhere in Manitoba and then make our way back. And I went to my, well, first we discussed as, as a group, okay, we need a, a vehicle that's gonna get us there and back. And we need a vehicle that's you know, large enough to fit all of us that wanna go on this trip. And I mean, we were 18, none of us had a vehicle that could, probably can make it a couple hundred kilometers without something going wrong. And so I went to my mom. She had a minivan at the time. It was the coolest thing. It really wasn't. <laughs> I said, Mom, can my friends and I borrow your van to drive to Manitoba and back? And uh, absolutely not, you know, was her response. No, that's not going to happen. I think she was more worried about driving my vehicle for those, you know, couple weeks that I had hers. But she didn't want that out. She didn't want us to go. But I knew that she wanted, I had something that she wanted essentially, and I knew that. But her response was, you think you're going to persuade me? No, this is not going to happen. So after a few days, I thought of a great plan. At this time, I had long hair that I had cut into the most beautiful mullet you've ever seen. <laughs> I thought about getting a picture, but not for today. Yeah. And, and my mom hated this hair, and I knew she hated it. And so I went to her after a couple days, and I said, listen, I will cut my hair if I can borrow your van. So we went on this road trip to Manitoba. (laughs) But the beginning was that response. You think you're going to persuade me? And like Paul, I had the attitude, well, in short time or long time, something's going to happen. I hope I can persuade you. You know, (laughs) As Christians, we should always have that mindset when we're talking about Jesus to those that don't know him yet. You know, in short time or long time, I pray that God is going to touch your heart and get a hold of your heart. In short time or long time, I hope you see the joy that I have as well because of him. <laughs> as I said before, the gospel is, is not effective until it moves from principles and doctrines into a life altering relationship with Jesus. You just remember Paul's words earlier? I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. I'm not afraid to admit that. That's my prayer for us today. That we will not be afraid to admit it. And that we will have the response of Paul that in a short time or a long time I am praying to God. That wherever I go, that wherever, whatever I do, that you will be able to see Jesus through my actions, through my words and deeds, and that you will be able to come and have a life-altering relationship with him. That my life be a witness to Jesus. As a follower of him, who, he who has saved me 
from a life apart from him, from a life of sin, a life of shame and guilt. He has taken away all of that. And he has set me free, given me eternal life. So my prayer, my hope for all of us today is that no matter your situation, that you will be able to worship him. No matter what's in front of you today, that you're able to focus on Jesus. And that no matter what the culture is saying around you, you will have that mindset. Even if they think it's ridiculous, even if they don't understand it, whether in short or long, I pray that God will have a, grab a hold of their heart. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can come together, hear of your word, and like Paul says, I am not afraid to admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. God, let our prayer today be, as Paul said, in short time or long time. I hope that you will come, that everyone will come to know about your saving grace, Jesus. God, wherever we are at today, we know that you meet us in that position, in that place. Whether we're climbing a mountain that's in front of us, whether we're in a dark valley, God, I pray that we will focus on you still, that we will be able to worship of your great name, of your great power that sets us free. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. That we can come here and that we can worship you. God, I just pray a blessing over all of us today as we go from here. For those that are in this building, those that are watching online, God, that we will be able to be bold for your kingdom. So God, we praise you and we worship you. And in your great and holy name, we say amen and amen.